0: If you have a Bible with you, Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Uh, This is a time of our service where I often get the joy and the privilege to teach the Bible. If we haven't met, my name is Lance, and I've been around Four Oaks. I've been a member here for coming up on 10 years. can't believe that. It's been 10 years that we've been around the church, and I get the joy of pastoring here, uh, which is even more of a delight, more of a gift. And often we study Scripture together in our services. The way we do that is we pick a book of the Bible, and in our desire to avoid mere hobby horses, some of which are very fun, uh, mere hobby horses, and certainly to avoid the temptation to not say what Scripture says, we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it together. So we are now in the seventh verse of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. If you're just jumping in, we are at a wonderful time in the study of Matthew. We're coming near to the end of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. My guess is, is that no matter your background with Christianity, you've probably heard the words of Jesus in this sermon, and they are familiar to, to you in some way. My desire, my great prayer over the next number of moments as we read this together, is that I could do two things. I would love to be of benefit to you, and I know that that sounds obvious, but it really is a concern of mine that I could help you in your understanding of the Bible, of course, that's way better than the opposite, if I would be of detriment to you. you know, if that's the case and you leave here and you say, wow, I just, uh, I don't know, I, it's more fuzzy and I don't get it. That would be a, a disaster. So I pray against that. I want to help you. And then second, I hope that these moments inspire a kind of holy curiosity in you to know your Bible better so that if this is the only time where we study together, or this is the only time, it's wonderful. We're so glad you're here. You may not feel equipped to or sophisticated enough or whatever it is. You may not have time or the habit of reading Scripture. And that's great. I'm glad we get this time together, but I want to invite you to more than that. I want to invite you to know that these words, God's very words to us, are alive and active, and they're for you tomorrow as well, and on Tuesday and on Thursday. And if as we study... You desire to understand the Bible more, then I would just be so tickled. That would be excellent. So let's look together now in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Jesus is going to return to, he's nearing the end of this collected bit of teaching that Matthew puts here. He puts it all in one place. It's probably a culmination of themes that Jesus taught on many times, he's compiled them here. And he's coming near to the end of it, and he's going to return to a great theme of Matthew chapter 6, and that is prayer. He's already taught us in Matthew chapter 6 the Lord's Prayer. He's told us to avoid a certain kind of praying, a both hypocritical religious praying and a kind of pagan, what he calls a Gentile babbling. So the question for us is going to be, why is he returning to prayer? Why, after teaching us, to seek first the kingdom and teaching us to not be anxious and teaching us not to judge others, why does he return to prayer? That'll be the question that we look at verses 7 through 11 is about prayer itself. And then we're going to look at verse 12 as well. Verse 12 is perhaps the most famous saying of Jesus, the golden rule, if you've heard of that one before. I'm going to read that, and I'm actually going to include it. Your Bible might have it separated out with verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read it with 7 through 11 and hopefully try to give a bit of a connection for why I think that makes sense. This is the seventh verse of Matthew chapter 7. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks for this is the law and the prophets. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, help us. We need to understand and to see what we often cannot see. So we pray that you would give us eyes and dig ears for us and soften our hearts. We want to know what it is to pray with the right posture, to know You as our Father. And so I ask that in the midst of all that You've given, that we would not miss the gift it is to pray. Restore to us a childlike joy and expectation. God, we thank You for being transcendent. You are beyond us. Your power and might is more than we could calculate. And yet you are here. So we thank you for your presence. Help us to learn together now and to be more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Jesus is trying to reorient us to the right kind of praying, the right kind of understanding of prayer, which is interesting to go back here after having already taught us on prayer and what to avoid in chapter 6. So why is there more to say concerning prayer? My guess is, is because it is so easy to get out of whack in the way that we pray. I'm going to try to make a connection for you here, and if it doesn't work, that's okay. You can erase it. If it does, then great. Over the last couple of days, I've been trying to put together or get back functioning a computer that had died in our house. It's an old Dell computer that is years and years and years old, so it's a bit of a dinosaur on its own. And a number of months back, it just stopped working. In other words, the computer would not send a signal to the monitor. You could not run it. And so if you've never opened up a computer, I would invite you to. It's pretty fun. And I nerded out for a little while, and I opened it up, and I realized that the GPU is not functioning, meaning the graphics card is not sending a signal. So though it's doing all of its smart things, it's not showing up anywhere to interact with it. And that makes sense, because I said it's a bit of a dinosaur. It's an old computer and the graphics card that was in it was sent to me by my brother probably five years ago now and it was an old hand-me-down thing that my brother had that he probably bought on ebay or some talk forum from a decade prior to that so it's crusty dinosaur in crusty dinosaur and it stopped functioning so now a couple months later i got a little part and i think to myself this could work again and now i want to spend some time having it come back to life so again, you open up the computer, and you just put some things in, and you mess around, and then you plug it in, and it's alive. But then something happens. You have to spend the next hours trying to get the computer to do the things that you want it to do. And what you notice is, when it resets itself, that there are a lot of very annoying and subtle differences. You realize that there's a lot of little settings that have been changed throughout the use of this computer. And what it does when it sets back by itself is it goes to what are called default settings. And so I had the experience of clicking on Microsoft Edge. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a little E for the internet. Many of you, the only time you've ever used that button is to click it one time and type download Chrome in its little box at the top, and then you get a different browser. But it's down there still, right? And so I opened this thing up, and I started to realize that everything that I touched, including Microsoft Edge, kept annoying me with this little pop-up. And here's what it would say. Do you want to set this browser as your default browser? And I say, no, I don't. Not interested, thank you for offering. It's enticing and everything, but no. 10 minutes later, I try to click something else. Boom, a pop-up. Oh, would you like to set Microsoft Edge as your default browser? No, that's okay, I try to open a PDF. Would you like to show this PDF in the browser? In other words, it's trying to press a certain set of defaults on me. And it got me thinking about why Jesus may be teaching us concerning prayer. You see, what's going to happen here in Matthew chapter 7 is Jesus is going to point out that there ought to be If what a computer default is is a setting that is pre-installed that says when you do so and so, your instinct, your automatic will be this, I believe that what Jesus is offering to us here in Matthew 7 are a couple of default settings regarding prayer. And we are to treat them not as you might a Microsoft browser, but instead the good and proper and beautiful design of God in the gift that he's given us in prayer. And so I'm going to talk about what I consider to be the teaching of Jesus related to two default settings of our life. The first, and I'm going to invert these, because there's a cause and effect. Jesus says, here's the cause. He starts with, you should do this thing. And then he backs it up with, this is why. And I'm just going to flip those. Our default setting related to prayer should be about position. We have a default position that should lead us to pray. And that position is that we are related to the Father. Seeing God as Father and reminding ourselves that that should be our default setting will help us in prayer. And then secondarily, not only position, but we have a posture in prayer. What is our posture? How do we approach this Father who loves us and has all things? And the response here is that our, pro- our posture ought to be one of childlike faith. Not arm's length praying, Not discouraged, jaded praying. Not too wise and sophisticated to believe for things kind of praying. But childlike, joyful posture in prayer. And those two things, position and posture, are going to be what I believe Jesus helps us to see so that at the end result, here's one hope, one prayer. The end result is that you would leave here today reminded of the wonderful gift you have in prayer and be motivated to say, I want to pray not only in this way, but more in this way. So we're going to look at these things in that order. First position and then posture. I want to remind you that one of the most astounding and unbelievable things that Jesus taught, the things that got people really uncomfortable, the things that gave sort of twitches and ticks to the religious folk of the day, is when Jesus began to speak of Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God who had set the law down, who upheld all things, Yahweh who had been held in such high regard by, by the Jewish people for good reason, that this same Yahweh, the high and exalted one, Jesus is inviting his followers to call Father. And that disturbed all of those who thought that he was being flippant but the miracle that Jesus is inviting us to see is that God can keep and does keep all of his, this is a technical theological term, all of his Yahwehness, and he has made a way through his Son such that that God, with all of his power and might and strength and all of his transcendence, is as close to us as a Father. And in fact, is our eternal Father, not just. Mystically, not just theoretically, not just metaphorically, but that He is more our Father than any earthly Father we've ever known, that He is eternally to be known as our Father. And so Jesus starts in verse 7 by saying, here's what you should do. You should ask, and you should seek, and you should knock. But we're going to start with why. What's the cause of that effect? And He says, well, here's what you need to remember. You would pray like this if you remembered and saw God as your father, the question becomes something like this. Here's a jumpstart to your prayer life. What is God like? What do you think God is like? In the invitation, starting in verse 9, Jesus is going to say, let's think about a father, because that's what he's like. And he starts with a very earthly example. In other words, he's going to go from less to more. It's a common teaching of the Bible. From less to greater is a common theme in the way things go. You see it in Romans all the time. And how much more, he might say. So he starts with an earthly father. He says, which one of you, if his son, so you see he's going in father-son relationship, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Well, that seems kind of ridiculous. The rhetorical question is supposed to have a negative response. Well, no one. That's kind of dumb. And then he goes on and he makes it even more ridiculous to show the heart of a father to a child. If you ask for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Now, some dads have terrible jokes and are bad at pranking, but this is downright treacherous. I want bread and fish. I'm hungry and I need things to survive. Here's a stone and here's a, here's a wily serpent. Why is Jesus giving these examples? Well, he's teaching those who would listen to think about the heart of God in a certain way. When you think about what you lack, when you think about what you need, when you think about how you've suffered, when you think about what you're stressed about, when you think about the parts of yourself that you're not sure could ever change, when you think about the people around you who need to be transformed in ways that you've given up hoping for, Jesus presses the question first, well, what do you think God is like? the response ought to be well he's like a good father and what do good fathers want for their kids they want the kind of relationship where a child in boldness and joy comes expectantly to the father and says something like this father i know you can provide father i know you're wise father i know you can lead father i know you can guide and i'm your child therefore could you give therefore can i give you my desires and I would find, therefore can I knock, and you would open. You see, if and because the Father is good, and if you are positioned in relationship with Him like that, then it would open up the floodgates of you rushing to Him in joy. The default setting to God for all of those who are alive in Christ is that He is our Father with a disposition to bless the child. This same idea of father-relationship is found in Luke chapter 9. It's kind of a parallel, what Bible scholars call a synoptic episode, meaning alongside in, in Luke, which is another gospel. Luke chapter 11 is, has many of the same teachings, teachings found from the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the way that Luke says it. Almost identical, there'll be a few little changes. He says in verse 9 of Luke chapter 11, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish instead of a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I'll just pause there for a moment. He's made it more ridiculous. I'm sure that in many of the times when Jesus taught, he perhaps used slightly different illustrations, and this one really shows the treachery of a terrible father. I imagine like a little Cadbury kind of egg. He's like, I need an egg, please. Then it opens up, and it's a scorpion. I mean, that'd be a sad situation, right? Why is Jesus pressing such absurd things? He's forcing them to ask, yeah, what kind of father would that be? Therefore, he says, what kind of father do we have? He goes on in verse 13, if you then who are evil, meaning fallen and a part of this order, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who, who ask him. How much more? Meaning this father, imagine the best intentions of a good earthly father. Imagine the kind of feeling that you would have when you are protected and cared for and guided by a father in all of the best senses of that word earthly. Jesus says that's a mere whisper. That's just a bit of a shadow of the kind of much more fathering that our God desires for those who are in Christ. What kind of father do we have is the question that we ought to ask when we pray. And I think that Jesus would say, what kind of father do I have is the question that we ought to ask when we do not pray. Here's a question for you. Do you not pray because you believe that God does not care? Do you not pray because you can't imagine that He would come near to a sinner like you? Do you not pray because you believe God is exacting? Do you not pray because you believe that God is too busy? Do you not pray because you think that to ask Him would show that you were weak If these are temptations for you, then Jesus says, No, 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 no. Scrap all that. I want you to think about how a father interacts with a child. What happens when a child in joy and boldness and sincerity rushes to a father and places all of his desires and wants into the basket of the provision of the father and says, Please, can you, Dad, give? What we are taught to answer is that a good father desires this oftentimes more than anything else in the world. to be trusted, to be deeply related to. And for a child to express the kind of faith that says, "You know what? I have need and I have suffering and I have disappointment and I have discouragement, I'm confused, but I have a father, and I'm going to go to him. Our default position is that those who are in Jesus are loved by Him with the same eternal, deep delight that the Father has had in the Son for eternity past. You are not a makeshift child. You are not a project child. You are not a temporary child. The great gift of life in Christ means that from eternity past before the foundation of the world, the Father's thoughts toward you were more than the stars in the sky and more than the sand on a sea. It means that in the work of Jesus coming to live a righteous life and dying a sinner's death and erupting up out of the grave because it could not hold Him, that the Father was loving the Son and loving you at the same time. It means that you, daughter, and you, son, for eternity future will have a spot at the table and be loved by the Father the same way that He's loved His Son for eternity past. He sees you And there is a flow of gentle providing affection and care that cannot be matched. That's the position that we're in. So I want you to imagine a child lacking, a child needing, a child confused, a child desperate, and all the while refusing to go to their father. The problem is not that God is so busy that He's an absent minded Father and His children are a bother to Him. The problem, Jesus seems to say, is that we have forgotten. We need to reset. We need the Spirit of God to make us born again and realize that we have access that is more than Access. We are relationally connected to the God of the universe who has all things, holds all things, and loves us with a never forsaking love. That changes how we pray. That's the cause, so what's the effect? Well, our default setting, the default posture toward a father like that ought to be faith. It ought to be faith, to not give into the disappointments and discouragements of a fallen world, to not be once bitten, twice shy, to not say that I am jaded and I don't want to ask too much, to not be the one who is not a bother and try to live a life of self-sufficiency, but instead to embrace who you are. If you are positioned as a child to a father, then your posture ought to be a child to a father. And Jesus says, here's the invitation come boldly, come joyfully, come consistently, and come with expectation. You cannot out-ask God. I remember one time when the kids were little, I asked, you know, the, the thing that happens every time when Christmas or birthdays come, it was like, oh, what are you thinking? What do you want? What do you, what do you want any gifts or anything like that? And other than the 100% of the time where I tease them that birthday is canceled that year or that gifts are illegal because the president just signed a new bill. See, I have a lot of bad dad jokes with the kids. But in addition to that, I sincerely want to know. There's been a couple of times throughout the, the years where they've asked for something that was either far, far, far too small because they couldn't think of something, but sometimes something way, way, way too big. And it's actually funny to watch a child not understand the scale of life. There's been times, I think, when a child would even dare to ask a father for something that a billionaire could not provide. i told this story before, but one time when the kids were just learning about what the sun was, they got up way early in the morning because they always did, and it's 5 a.m. And we come downstairs, and it's dark. And so I'm turning on all the lights, and they point outside, and they say, Light, Daddy, light. And I realize that my lights are on, but they're pointing at the big light outside. They didn't want it to be dark outside, and they just were like, come on, turn on the light. And I think to myself, one, how funny and what a joy to get to teach them. How could I describe? I know to them, a light switch is already magic, so they figure, why can't you turn on the sun? And then here's the question, am I mad at them? Do I think, oh, your childishness, Asking a father to do something he could never do? Or instead, am I not melted with utter delight to think that a child would look at a father and be like, I don't know, you probably can. I have a want and I'm just going to bring this to you. You see, that's the amazing thing about children. In good, and I know that in a fallen world there are jaded aspects of this, but in a good relationship with a father, to a kid, they have no idea the bounds of what they can provide. I don't know, my dad can drive a car, so maybe he can turn on my son. I don't know. My dad can go to the store and he just waves this little plastic card around and then people give him things. So maybe, I don't know. I just know that I have a father who loves me. When I have problems with math, it's crazy he knows. You see, our posture toward this father ought to be one where we say we are not going to offend him with the greatness of our requests, with the depth of our authentic, real desires, but instead delight his heart. Now, at the same time, when a child asks for something that's outlandish, there's also another thing that melts your heart too. And that is when the kid says, but I know if it doesn't work out, it's okay. And I remember the moment that our kids started to genuinely think that as well. Hey, here's what I want, but you know what I'm also learning? It's okay if I if it doesn't happen. It's it's okay. I'm gonna be okay. But Jesus says our default posture toward this Father who loves us ought to be one of faith. And here's a question for you. Is Jesus naive? Does he not get it? Is he not in the real world? Does he not know what it means to be disappointed? These are rhetorical questions. Of course he knows. What's astounding to me is that Jesus himself knows all the times that we've asked and we've not yet received. He knows all the times that we've sought and we still feel lost. He knows all the times that we've knocked and been tired and feel like we may crack our knuckles because nothing seems to be opening. Then how could he have the audacity to say keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. Well, I think the reason that he does this is because it is not antithetical to the fathering of God for prayers to sometimes not be answered in the way that we asked. We learn that God is our Father both in the joyful asking for things and we learn how God is our Father in the timing and the provision which He gives and sometimes hesitates to give. Because good fathering includes a knowledge and a wisdom and a direction that is beyond what children should know. This is why we need to keep both these things in tension. If we forget that God is our father, we may be remiss to or never ask. And if we forget that he is our father, we may ask for things and be annoyed that he doesn't do what we say as though he were a vending machine. So here are a couple things being taught by Jesus. If you are the kind of person who prays in this way, I asked one time and it didn't come, and if the Father's just going to do whatever He wants anyway, then why do I even have to ask? I think what Jesus would say is, you're missing the point of prayer. You can't approach your Father outside of the context of relationship. And if you think that this is about a math problem of getting just what you want, then there's more for you to learn. So, some things to keep in mind as we work toward a default setting of a posture of faith. One, it is true that this is not all the Bible says about prayer in Scripture. So, we don't proof-text God. We take the totality of His Word, and somehow, through the mix of all of it, we're to maintain a posture of joyful asking. We know from Matthew chapter 6, just one chapter before this, that Jesus said, "'Pray to our Father in heaven,' but then also recognize that His kingdom comes and His will needs to be done before ours. So we are children and we pray expectant, but we surrender ourselves to a Father who knows more than we know. Jesus has not only taught this, but demonstrates it Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asks because He has a Father, and He trusts because He has a Father. The reality is is that a good father knows timing. He knows when to withhold. He knows when to discipline. He knows when to bless. And to have a good father is not to have a glorified servant who simply has access to a wonderful credit card and affirmation all the way around, but instead we entrust ourselves in relationship to a real father. I think Hebrews chapter 12 is a good example of this. Do you remember what happens before Hebrews 12? It's just a little bit of a math problem. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is known in the scripture as being the chapter of faith, the childlike faith to stir us and say, Yes, we can believe. Yes, we can believe. And then it's interesting because in Hebrews chapter 12, the author teaches us about discipline and suffering and waiting. This is what it says in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 12 It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? There's the much more thinking again, teaching again. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then note verse 12, therefore. So you see this? He's teaching those who are going through, he calls it discipline. Now, we don't know always when God is disciplining. I'm not saying to you that your current maybe lack of receiving what you've prayed for is somehow discipline. I don't know, but we give the Father prerogative to discipline. You may be in a spirit of enduring. He says that in Hebrews chapter 12. You may be being treated like a son. It's this unpleasant moment. And it seems odd to me in verse 12, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. In other words, when we are related to the Father properly, we continue to pray even when we don't know that we're receiving what we're asking for, not because we trust in what we get but we trust that we are related to a father who loves us, knows when to give, knows when to withhold, and has perfect timing over all things. The question of a true child in asking of a father is something like this. Do you believe that a day will come in the future when the wisdom of your father will prove itself to be true in a way that you could not see? Is it possible that in the future that you will delight in the fact that your Father kept you from something that you did not want to be kept from, and it was so much to the better? Do you believe that one day all things will gloriously work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose? If so, then you can both ask and open your hands to what is given. This is a cause and effect passage. I don't know exactly. I think the golden rule in verse 12 probably stands on its own. But it's interesting to me that Jesus has just said, imagine an earthly father. How would that father want his children to approach him? And now he says in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. The question is, because we have a father like this, how does he want his children to ask? The reality is is that he wants us to ask with expectation and joyful surrender. Sometimes the best things in life are the most simple. It's amazing to me how often I don't need new information. I simply need a deeper application of what I know to be true. So let's learn this lesson well concerning prayer. Basic question. Lance, I'll start with you. Lance, do you ask... I know you stress, I know you scheme, I know you plan, I know you whine, I know you rant, I know you run. Do you ask? Here's a good question for us. What are we seeking? What does your prayer life reveal that your heart wants the most? What are you seeking Many of us, including myself, often fail, fall victim to a prayerless life because what I am ultimately seeking is a self-sufficient life. I want to prove that I can do it. I heard someone say one of the most helpful things for prayer for me. They asked a basic question, why is it that you don't pray? The answer in response, because you think you can do it. How is it that you can go day after day and week after week and month after month without praying? Well, because you are seeking and finding what it is that you want, which is a self-sufficient life. Are you knocking? I think the idea of knocking here seems to be about persistence. We did not have time to read the whole thing, but in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. That's how he introduces the parable. Pray and don't lose heart. Are you no longer knocking because you lost hope? I think about the things that maybe I used to pray for. I saw a drone image a while back of what is called, it's an airplane graveyard, I think it's out in Arizona somewhere. So if you're a decommissioned plane, military, civilian, airliner, whatever, there's this place that just collects all these, and it is an image from above of an unbelievable scene of these abandoned airplanes just in a graveyard of a field. I think the question here that Jesus would put to us is there a graveyard, a similar abandoned field of your prayers? Is there something that if you look back you'd say, "You know, I used to believe God for that, but I just don't now." Have you grown weary in doing good? Have you found that the sadness and the suffering and the discouragement Has changed the default setting of your prayer life? Do you believe that God is kind of miserly and withholds from you? Do you believe that He's bothered by you? Do you believe that He's not cooperating? Does it leave you prayerless? Then I believe that what Jesus would teach us and show us here is that we ought to reimagine and pray that the Spirit of God would give us that new life that says, I want to ask. There have been hurts and pains and difficulties and discouragements, but I trust them to my Father and I'm going to not. Change the default setting of my life. I am His child and He loves me and He'll never forsake me. Therefore, with joy, I'm bringing a wide-eyed Christmas list again. Do we pray? He's the joy of our life. The invitation is here to pray. So I would invite you not because I have authority, not because I have some sort of secret access, but because all of those who confess their sins and all of those who go to Jesus in faith are invited into this family and have the access and the ear of the Father. So I invite you for your own good, for your own joy. Seek, knock, ask, and watch your Father provide. Let's pray.